It's, it's Sad Solo Sister, Sad Solo Sister, Sad Solo Sister time. I just think it's really fun. It's an alliteration. It's the best. Ha. Top of the episode in three, two, one. Hello and welcome back to Sibling Rants. It's your little sister Bronwyn. That's it. It's just me. As you heard in the intro, it is Sad Solo Sister Week. (laughs) Uh, But before I get too carried away, uh, I am actually not in Kitchener this week. Uh, I have uh, traveled to Edmonton. So as I sit here in Edmonton, Alberta, I recognize that Edmonton is located within Treaty 6 territory and within the Métis homeland and Métis nation of Alberta Region 4. I acknowledge this land as the traditional territories of many First Nations, such as the Cree, Dene, Stone, Anishinaabe, and Blackfoot peoples. Edmonton owes its strength and vibrancy to these lands and the diverse Indigenous peoples whose ancestors' footsteps have marked this territory, and I'm immensely grateful that I am able to come to these lands and not only create, but appreciate and explore their richness as I reaffirm my commitment to truth and reconciliation wherever I go. I do want to take this time moment to apologize for any mispronunciations within the acknowledgement and state my promise to keep learning about the lands with which I visit, not only while I'm here, but whenever I travel. It is so common as someone with settler and colonizer ancestry to travel to cities and not think about their rich indigenous histories, and I think it's so important to change that. Take the time. Learn. I will continue to learn as I travel throughout my life. Uh, As I stated already, I am here on my own today. (laughs) Sad solo sister time, y'all. It's finally here, Uh, and while it might be the best alliteration around in my head, it's also very awkward. (laughs) I made so much fun of Andrew for his, like, sad solo brother, and now that I'm recording, it is actually really really awkward it's you're talking to yourself you also like know that you're not gonna have somebody to riff off of because usually like when Andrew and I don't know what to talk about we sit there and just kind of like riff off of each other like I'll say something it'll trigger something that he wants to talk about and vice versa as you guys know and listen to every week and uh, I don't have that here, so I have made a few notes, <laughs> and hopefully it goes okay. I don't know if this is going to be a regular length episode, but we will see. Sometimes I know how to talk, so uh, we'll see what I do. I, I actually was sitting there, and I had to say to my friend that I am visiting, um, I was like, I have to go record my like solo episode, so we'll see how that goes. And she's like, oh yeah, have you been putting it off? And I was like, yep, <laughs> my executive dysfunction around this has been very strong because my brain is resisting it because it doesn't know what to do. So anyway, I'm here. Um, The sound quality is probably not good because I am recording with my AirPods, but uh, we're going to do what we can. So (laughs) if it seems awkward, if I seem sad like Andrew, it is because it is so much easier to record these podcasts with somebody else. And I uh, commend every single person who runs a podcast on their own because it is not easy to do. So anyway, without further ado, uh, I have been... Well, pretty absent. I know we talked about it a little bit uh, on the episode a couple weeks ago, the the first episode in a while of both brother and myself. Um, And in part, as we explained, it's due to work becoming really busy. We were running a festival called Impact, which I know you guys are regular listeners, um, heard the advertisement for. Uh, It was two weeks, very intensive. The lead up to it was really stressful. And then afterwards, it was still pretty stressful because I, you know, we were all, everybody on the team was pretty burnt out and tired and didn't know when we were going to get our, you know, individual forms of rest and whatnot. So (laughs) we're slowly getting back to it. Uh, Last week, I was uh, really busy actually planning to be in a friend's wedding this past weekend. And then the trip to Edmonton came up really randomly on Sunday night. I was chatting with this friend and she suggested I come for the week and here we are. So yeah, (laughs) it's been, it's been some time. 
it's hard to like know kind of when you do things like this what to talk about especially when you're used to having somebody to riff off of as I said because it's also hard as Andrew mentioned when he was doing his solo episodes that you know there's lots of topics that I want to bring up but I don't really want to bring them up on my own because it would be really beneficial to have Andrew here to have the other perspectives and to be able to talk through it with somebody else so I'm going to do what I can um particularly just I think discuss some things that came up on the weekend there were like many TikToks I went through going oh I could talk about this and I could talk about this but again there are things that I would really love to discuss with Andrew so yeah I think I'm just gonna dive in to a few topics that have come up the past you know week or so uh, and so in part due to conversations that I was having this weekend uh you know this wedding was um Congratulations to my friend Laura and her new husband, Tim. Give them that shout out. I'm just going to talk like I'm talking to a friend here. But I, yeah, it, this wedding was a long time coming. Um, they got engaged, it, like, well before the pandemic and then planned the wedding for July 4th of 2020. And they have been living in the States for a while due to jobs, uh, but they are Canadian. And... Then the pandemic hit. And so this wedding was put off about three times. <laughs> and myself and the other bridesmaid and the bride, we have been friends as a trio since high school. And so they're the two, they're the really the only two like close friends that I kept from high school. And so it was nice to be able to finally go through this process, have this day. It was honestly just like a really, really beautiful day. Um, but as the nature of weddings goes, you are introduced to new people and I was introduced to the groomsmen and the different families and whatnot. And so at the rehearsal dinner, some like really interesting conversations came up and it's one of those things where like, I'm game to talk about stuff like this anytime and everybody in my life knows that <laughs> you get me going on my special interest, which is social justice and anti-racism and, you know, anti-capitalism and whatnot. And, uh, and I will not stop. So it was actually really interesting at the, you know, when I go into things like rehearsals dinners, I'm always like, ooh, am I either going to be the weird quiet person because I don't know how to engage with these people? Or are they going to trigger a conversation with me because they talk about it, something I'm very interested in or like have a lot of knowledge on? And will I just like keep going? And it turns out it was the latter. Um, we got into some really, and, and I should say in part because I think, you know, Laura and Tim just have some like decently like-minded friends um, or at least decently like open-minded friends even if they didn't originally think the same way and I think that that's you know that's big on it. I've been I was in another wedding where that wasn't the case it was all very different personalities and, and that was fine but it wasn't the same type of vibe and so there were a couple times last weekend where at the rehearsal dinner you know, people would ask questions and my friend would be like, no, we're not going to get into that. Because, I think in part because she knows that like you get me going and I won't stop. But it actually turned out really well. People were really respectful and, and it was actually some really great conversation. So I'll, I'll go into some of that before I ramble your ear off about like absolutely nothing. So one of the topics that came up uh, was actually uh, like luck and privilege versus hard work. And I, I actually talk about this a lot because I think that, you know, we live in a society specifically capitalism or that is specifically run by capitalism, I should say, in which we get really offended when, and like, I get why, but we get offended when somebody suggests that like anything in our lives could be luck when we've worked so hard for it. And I think that this is a really important topic to unpack. And I think we have, you know, talked about it in different ways. I know I've mentioned that like luck and privilege does not negate hard work. Um, but I'm going to talk about it a little more because I don't think we've ever actually delved into in depth why that's important for us to recognize. As I said before, privilege is not a bad thing. <laughs> it, privilege is good. It's what you do with that privilege that uh, that is the piece you need to focus on. Having privilege itself is good for you, right? Like, great. You do not have these same struggles that other people have. That's amazing. Good for you. It's when we forget that that is privilege, despite our hard work, and we start refusing to listen to other people's lived experiences and refusing to acknowledge that those are also true, even if they're not true in our life, 
that's when our privilege becomes a negative thing because we are using it to silence other people's experiences because this world is really hard in a myriad of ways for a shit ton of people. And I think that the moment we sit there and go, well, that doesn't happen to me. I've never seen that before in my life. That can't be true is the moment that we become like neglectful and, and, and negligent in this society to to the fact that it is a really diverse experience to, or there's a really diverse set of experiences navigating this world as a whole. I think it's really, you know, I, I went on a little Twitter um, thread not that long ago, about a week or so ago, I think, about the topic of privilege and, and how layered it is. And actually, if I can pull it up, I will look at that right now. Okay, so the Twitter thread that I wrote was, you know, I've been struggling a lot with this idea, with these ideas of layers of privilege. And not just not struggling to accept them, but just struggling to understand why so many other people refuse to accept them. And I know that it, that, that is, you know, it's by design. <laughs> we, you know, under, under capitalism, we are very specifically supposed to be focusing on ourselves. It is a very, you know, self-oriented environment. And there's a reason for that. It's, it's you know, it breeds greed, it breeds narcissism, it breeds selfishness. And that's, you know, the society we live in. But I think it's really important to understand the layers of privilege, because while we may be privileged in one way, we're not in another. And I think that that really often muddies the waters for when other people bring up our privilege. I think it's really easy for us to go, well, like, I don't feel privileged and I don't think I have privilege in this way. And it's like, you might not, but you do have privilege over here. And so hopefully this Twitter thread that I wrote makes sense for that. But I think that it's an important piece for, for you know, uh, for us to realize. So I wrote, I think a lot about the many layers of privilege I hold and finding the line between where I am marginalized and where my privilege places me within that marginalization. For example, I am poor, neurodiverse, ADHD autistic, gay, fat, and a woman. While these are distinct marginalizations, my place within them isn't just quote unquote oppressed. For example, for further example, uh, pervasive through all of these is my whiteness. In each of these groups, I hold privilege because of my race, which is an important piece to remember. In addition to this, there are other factors that mean I have way less barriers than others. As a poor person, I hold privilege knowing that no matter what, I have a huge community around me who will not let me become unhoused. I will always have a roof over my head, even if not ideal. So while being poor is hard, it could be more life-threatening if I was alone. As an ADHD slash autistic person, I am lucky to have received diagnosis for my ADHD in university, even if late in life. And while I can't afford an official autism diagnosis, I am lucky that my friends, family, and community are accepting and willing to learn slash listen. That's a huge one. Growing up gay, I have always been incredibly lucky to have been born into a loving and accepting family. My dad was, as you guys know, my dad was a priest now retired, and was the first person to hold me as I am. I do not experience being 2S LGBTQ plus under the pressures of trauma. As a visibly fat woman, I am experienced way less I have, I have experienced way less blatant fat phobia than many other of my peers, in part because of my communities I have built for myself, and in part because I've always looked quote-unquote strong, and also in part because I am very bold and confident presence. And finally, as a woman, I have experienced very little sexual harassment, likely in part due to my other marginalizations. I have never been assaulted, and I grew up with parents who encouraged us to be bold, courageous, loud, and proud. All of these are privileges within my own marginalized identities. And while intersectionality is not about quote-unquote oppression Olympics, I think it is very important to understand the nuances of where our privileges and our lack of privilege intersect. Especially as white people. Why? Because we like to play the oppression Olympics the loudest in order to make ourselves feel less responsible for the harm caused by our whiteness. So we don't have to feel accountable to the oppression we participate in as a collective. But in general, the reason why intersectionality is so important is because if we truly listen, it allows us to see how interwoven privilege and marginalization can be. And once we understand that, we can use that knowledge to live in a world where we continue to listen and learn slash unlearn while also acknowledging the things that are hard for us. 
Life feels hard for me right now. I am exhausted, not just from work, not just from relationships, and not just from being poor in a capitalist world. I'm exhausted because life is exhausting. But this can live in the same place as the knowledge that I hold privilege. Because without that duality, who are we really? I can be gay and realize my upbringing shielded me from homophobia. I can be a woman and realize my whiteness gave me more opportunities. I can be poor and recognize that I have support. I can be neurodiverse and understand that others will never obtain a diagnosis when I have the ability to do so. Privilege is not a bad thing. It's how we perceive our privilege and how we exploit them that changes the game. We just have to remember that denying the privileges we do have closes a path for someone else and inevitably causes harm because we are unable in that state to accept that experiences are not universal. We stop listening and believing. We lose empathy. Just, uh, and then my last tweet was just, just a long thread as my hashtag actually autistic self reflects on the challenging dualities of being human and how easily we fall into the trap of only hearing the negative in quote unquote privilege. Use your privileges for good, not evil. Try to, try not to lose your empathy. I think about this a lot because it's true. I, you know, as somebody who has a, you know, a myriad of different marginalizations within those groups, I do hold immense amount of privilege just by nature of, you know, my own upbringing. And, you know, I may not have grown up with money, but I've even said to many of my friends that that did, that I would actually take my upbringing over theirs because money added complications in their lives that I don't have to deal with, um, in, in, including, you know, parents having set expectations because they have paid a certain amount of money to keep you in programs and, and whatever. And I think that that's a really interesting piece. We do, I think, especially especially as white people, and and to the point that I made in my in my tweet thread, we do use our own marginalizations to to muddy the waters in terms of our whiteness, right? We we to try and change the subject to be like, well, I'm marginalized too, so I get it. And it's like, no, we will never truly get what it's like to be not white in a very white centered white supremacist world, right? That is not negated by the fact that we're gay or by the fact that we're poor or by the fact, you know, it, it's not negated by any of that. It's just an added piece. And when we start playing the oppression Olympics, we start getting into these divides of, well, I have this and you have this, so therefore we're not the same. And instead of focusing on, okay, you are different and that's okay and your experience is different and that helps me understand the world better all of these things are good, I can help advocate for you and you can help advocate for me. And it's instead of us getting our guards up, right? And I think it comes back to the same as like luck and privilege does not negate hard work in, in our current society. We feel a lot of shame and guilt around how much we are working and, and, and whether it's enough and we're constantly playing this game because we're supposed to. We live in grind culture. We live in this productivity culture. If we are not producing, we are not useful in a capitalist world. We are not allowed to just exist. We must acquire money to do so. And so I get why we get so divided around this. But there is a lot to be said about, and this is part of the conversation I was having during the rehearsal dinner, is there's a lot to be said about you can work really hard for something and still have had the luck to get there. And, and what I said to a lot of the people at the table is, the difference is, you know, certain people at this table have worked very hard to get the really well-paying jobs they have, but they were lucky to be born into families that had the money and the resources to be able to put them in extracurriculars, to be able to pay for school for them, so that when they got out of school, they did not have the debt load that I did, for example, because I paid for school myself. I think that those things are really important for us to focus on and 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 to hear that and not immediately go, well, I worked hard. How dare you say it was luck? It is luck. It doesn't mean you didn't work hard. Luck and hard work can absolutely live in the same world. Dualities are really common in life. In fact, they should exist all the time. Like, for example, you can acknowledge that your parent loves you while also acknowledging that they are causing you harm. You can acknowledge those two at the same time and deal with it in therapy. Ha, huh, therapy. But, <laughs> but like a lot of the time we resist that, you know, it's either one or the other, or we'll say, but my parents are good parent. I promise. They're just, you know, they're, they're just causing me harm in this one way instead of going, yeah, that's fine. You don't have to defend them. When you say my mom is causing me harm, I don't automatically assume that she's a horrible mother altogether. I sit there and I listen and go, well, Parenting is complicated. I'm sure she loves her kid, but 
she also has to acknowledge that she is causing her kid harm. And those two things can live in the same world. And I think that too often we are focused on it has to be one or the other. It can't be both. And, and we get our defenses up. And I think it's really important to remember that. One of the things that I've been talking about a lot, and I, and I did say this at the table, which is funny because there were, you know, boomers, bo baby boomer generation parents, and they were at the table and I said, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot with regarding, with regards to the divide, the huge divide between millennials and boomers, even though, you know, millennials are the children of boomers, and why there is such a huge tension between our generations. I mean, that's a really complicated topic that, you know, we could go on and on about forever, but when you break it down to its most simplest piece, regardless of where you fall as a boomer in the baby boomer world, right, in that generation, whether you were harmed as well by the things that the baby boomer generation has perpetuated and built up to become late stage capitalism where we are at, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen, right? I think that as baby boomers, those who fell short of that life that, you know, that a lot of boomers are able to live comfortably and have good pensions and whatnot. Any boomers who fell short of that get really defensive really easily when, when collectively millennials are like, wow, boomers suck. <laughs> and I get that. Um, much like how, you know, people get upset when we say, you know, white people are trash and men are trash and all of these things. It's because we don't want to be part of that collective because we did not experience that same level of privilege. I understand that. But when you are part of a collective group that has caused harm, you have to be able to sit in that in, in that reality. And one of the things that the boomers as a collective have done is they climbed the ladder because I get into argue, I've gotten into arguments before with other boomers who are like, well, I had to work hard to get here. We didn't have it easy either. And, and my argument back is always, I'm not negating that. I'm not saying you didn't have it hard. The difference is, is that when you as boomers climbed that proverbial ladder up this large brick wall and you got to the top, you didn't just find ways to make the ladder more accessible. You kicked the ladder down. And then you started laughing at the rest of us, Gen X, Millennials, Gen Z, as we started to as we each started to climb the brick wall. And you sat there and went, "Why aren't you climbing it faster?" And this is, you know, this is obviously a metaphor, but this is the experience that a lot of us as millennials are having. And we have lived our whole lives having boomers still to this day, but also throughout our entire lives, calling us entitled, calling us, um, you know, wishy-washy and unable to make decisions and, you know, not adult enough and whatever, still literally talking about us as children when millennials span right now from the age of, I think it's around 27, 28, anyway, almost 30 to 40. Millennial, the oldest millennials are turning, turned 40 this year. And yet we are still treated like by a lot of boomers, like we are children. And we are in part because we do not have the assets. We do not have the money. We're still climbing that ladder. We have, we're not even close to reaching the top. We as a generation are the most highly educated generation and the poorest generation of the living generations. And that says a lot. I was talking to a friend recently about how, like it was based on a TikTok we had seen, about how, you know, boomers are, you know, they grew up in a world where the moment you became... Um, an adult and then the moment you became a senior is the moment that you held the knowledge because we lived in a world without quick access to information and so what we're seeing now is a lot of boomers are becoming seniors and or they're entering that you know they're becoming much older and they're no longer the source of all information because we you know, millennials grew up with the addition of the internet. Google is younger than me. <laughs> and so we have the ability to educate ourselves. We are also the most highly educated generation to date right now that is alive. And we have all of this knowledge and then the ability to upkeep this knowledge and share this knowledge with others. And, and we have become so highly educated that the oldest among us are no longer the knowledge bearers. In fact, a lot of the time, the knowledge they have is based on very, um, or much older ways of accessing knowledge. It's, it's based more on opinion and more on your own personal experience than it is on actual lived experience of others, which is the knowledge that millennials have more of because we have witnessed a lot of people try to navigate this world without the means to. And so our lived experience is so much wider. We're also seeing through social media and through our own access to social media, the lived experiences of others who don't even live in the same regions as us going through the same issues or even worse issues. And we are suddenly exposed to all of this. Oh my God, this world isn't working, right? So when the oldest people in the room are suddenly, you know, sitting there trying to hand down their knowledge, we aren't accepting it because we're sitting here going, I actually know that that's false now. And so there is also this duality with, 
I think on some level, boomers are also resisting that because it was the expectation that eventually they become the knowledge bearers. And that's just not true anymore in the same way. And boomers are also, you know, taking a lot longer to retire. And, and they are the, you know, the I think one of the few last living generations that has good pensions across, mostly across the board, in ways that millennials do not, in ways that even Gen X do not. And so the ways in which boomers navigate the world is just so wildly different. I've gotten into conversations with my own dad about, you know, the difference of you know, having money issues when he was younger versus me having money issues now. And the difference is just so drastic. It may look the same on the surface, but it's not. You know, my dad, by the time he was my age, had already owned a home and credit scores didn't exist until 1989. My whole life has been, it has been like determined by credit scores that I couldn't do anything about because I was a poor student just trying to survive. My credit score has always been terrible. My dad did not always have that hindering him, right? And it's these the differences of like, you know, uh, my parents going through a bankruptcy when they were younger and coming out of that and being able to, you know, pay off debts and and, and buy a home afterwards. That's not going to happen for me. I can't go and buy a home for, you know, 225000 or whatever they purchased theirs for at the time. Inflation is so high right now and the minimum wage is so stunted that, you know, a living wage where I live is, I know it's listed as like seventeen sixty. um, but it should be much higher than that because if you have any amount of debt, the living, the amount you need to live is so much higher. So, you know, an, a living wage for me would be about $25 an hour. I don't make that, you know, so it's, it's this, and, and the job security is so much less. There's so much competition for the available jobs right now and not nearly enough of them because we were taught, our generation specifically was taught Go to university. The only way you're going to get a good job is if you go to university. Screw college. Screw the trades. You want to go to university. That's the only way you can become smart. That's the only way you can have a job. And now we're all sitting here with university degrees and master's degrees that now equate the same as what the high school diploma used to equate, you know, in terms of finding jobs. Everybody has an undergrad. A ton of people have master's programs. It's no longer unique and special. We were lied to. <laughs> You know, and now as university graduates, we cannot get jobs and we're being told, well, you could have gone into the trades. And it's like, yeah, well, we could have if you had told us that that was valuable in any way. And you didn't. In fact, it was when I was growing up, I was actually like pushed into college level courses because teachers did not think due to my my undiagnosed ADHD and autism at the time, they did not think that I could get through university. So I then persevered to push through university and get that degree because I so desperately wanted to prove that I could do it and I so desperately wanted it you know and now I'm here at 31 and my my university degree doesn't get me very far you know and it's just we have been living this this specifically millennials we have been living this lie of we were promised the same future that the boomers had that, that they showed us when they, as our parents that we could have and now we're here we're in our 30s and we're for the most part on a larger scale we are pretty stunted and if you are a boomer listening to this now I know we don't probably don't have a huge boomer following but if you're a boomer listening to this and all the millennials you know have houses and good jobs and whatnot you then have to assess that that's not the norm a huge majority of millennials, like when you look at the actual data, millennials as a whole are suffering the most as a generation. We are the poorest. We own the least amount of wealth. We own 2.5% of the wealth, like of, this is out of, I think, uh, American statistics, but we own 2.5% of the overall wealth. And 1% of that 2.5% is Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> So, you know, we're kind of, we're kind of doomed. Whereas like boomers, when they were our age, had a much higher success rate. They had a much higher overall wealth rate when they were our age. So it's just, it is that different. And this is part of the conversation that I was having at the, at the dinner table for the rehearsal dinner. I would like to point out that I am an absolute treat and you should all invite me to be part of your weddings. <laughs> just joking. But uh, yeah, so that was one of the conversations that I had, and I thought it was really interesting, and 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 part of a larger conversation that I have just been having in general. When you know, when we, I, I know that there are probably people that are tired of me talking about capitalism, but when you when you pay attention to what's going on and you look outside of your own experience, or when you are living in this world and have not been able to get ahead no matter how hard you try like for example I am 31 years old and I have lived paycheck to paycheck my entire adult life my entire adult life even when I made more money because of my debt load and and you know I don't have the ability to save that's a huge chunk of millennials it's not just me 
And, uh, you know, it, when you live the world that way, you start to see how these systems are not working. And when you, you know, a lot, capitalism has been designed to indoctrinate us from the beginning into believing it is the only system that will work to the point where, and this is, again, stuff that I was saying at the rehearsal dinner table, because again, I am the best treat, is that, you know, we... Everything that is ever pointed out in the media about, you know, awful parts of communism and socialism, like when people point to Venezuela and be like, look how socialism failed. And when they point to other countries and they go, look how communism was awful and led to dictatorships and whatnot. People go, you know, that is part that is by design. A lot of the things that are actually listed there are capitalist traits. And and most of those countries were not true communism. They were not true socialism. They were they were they were aspects of communism and socialism that were driven by capitalism and state capitalism. When money is involved, it is still a capitalist society. And when you look at history and when you look at uh, human, when you look at, you know, the history of England, for example, and you look back to feudalism and you look at it and you look at some of the things that are happen happening under capitalism, like, for example, uh, the fact that migrant workers come onto farms in the States to do the work they are brought over and then sent back uh, over the summers, and they are put into absolutely atrocious living conditions with very little pay. And very few people know what these conditions are like, and, and they're truly, really awful. And when I think about that, I just think, wow, this is feudalism. You know, this is what existed in the 1500s in Britain. This is feudalism. It didn't actually die. Capitalism is just born out of that. And, and it's, you know, when everything is driven by money, things like greed, things like, um, you know, narcissism, things like, you know, men, severe mental health conditions, whatever, all of those are byproducts of capitalism. One of the, you know, as this conversation continued last weekend, it was pretty obvious to me that, you know, not everybody can see that. And that is, that is by design. That is by our own indoctrination. That is by our own education system. I mean, through capitalism, we have been actively defunding education for so long. And that's how we have ended up with this huge divide because if everybody got the same equal level of open education, where we actually learn about all of these things, they don't want that because that would expose the, the, you know, the, the more evil aspects of capitalism that keep the rich rich and the poor poor. Capitalism is only designed to give everybody else a sense of this feeling that they could one day be rich and to keep striving and working for that when really they are making low wages, working for giant corporations, making their bosses richer and themselves poorer. Everybody is so much closer to being unhoused and homeless than they are to being part of the 1% or even close to the 1%. And that is the lie that we live. And that is by design. And if education was better, we would see that sooner. But we, we, we don't want that as a society. <laughs> Capitalism does not want that. And so it's, it's absolutely part of the design, you know. And so I think that one of the things we don't see is that greed and narcissism, for example, which are two of the things that are mentioned, and this was mentioned at the table the other night, these things are like, well, I don't think communism could actually work because there's people are inherently greedy and I don't think that socialism could fully work because people are in inherently narcissistic, whatever. Narcissism and greed are byproducts of capitalism. And we don't see that because it's the only thing we've ever known. Um, and, and when we look back to feudalism, for example, it was the same. Greed and narcissism are bored out of that because when you have an immense amount of poor and then a small amount of rich or royal, whatever, your goal is to always try and become the rich so that you don't have to worry about being poor. You don't have to worry about grinding as hard. You can actually live your life the way you want to. And when we talk about, you know, how we are, we are told to, or essentially taught to villainize the poor our whole lives for being quote unquote bottom feeders and for being people who, you know, are, are, are quote unquote lazy and spend their money wrong and don't know how to live their lives and end up on drugs and whatnot, which are all byproducts of being in the shitty situation of being poor in the society. We are told to villainize that. And, 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 you know, when I had to go on Ontario Works in 2019, I sat there and went, oh my God, I have to go on welfare. And I was ashamed of it. And I, you know, now I don't view it that way. But at the time I was ashamed of it. And my girlfriend at the time looked at me and she went, you know, that's what they're for, right? Those systems are for support and they don't support enough. They absolutely do not give enough money, but they are absolutely there to support you when you need it. She said, I have, uh, I have all spectrums of people that apply for, for Ontario Works when it's necessary in their lives. It's not something to be ashamed of. And I realized that that was my own internalized um, 
you know, capitalist narrative is that it's shameful to be poor and to act like you're poor and to need the supports of being poor. It is shameful to need welfare it is because you are going to be lumped in with the people who quote unquote live on it for life and cheat the system. And I learned when I was on those systems that one, they're absolutely not livable, but for people that do live off of them, there's a reason for that. And we need to just let them live with those supports. You know, realizing, I think, more in the past couple of years through that experience and also through realizing that I am also disabled as somebody who is autistic in this current society, I have been striving my whole life to just, quote unquote, be normal. You know, I, I thought I was, I thought I was more a neurotypical person who just struggled a little bit. And I'm realizing that I'm, I'm very not. My brain is designed very differently and it is not a brain that is designed for capitalism because my brain is designed to see the faults in the system and to point them out and to see injustices and to point them out. And that is not desired in this current society. I get, you know, autistic or my autistic traits are things that, that are not seen desirable in, in, within capitalism. And that's why we have so much, you know, what, why we have such a huge need for dis disability in, in capitalism is because, and that's not to say that people wouldn't be disabled either way, regardless of the system, but there's so much more need for disability under capitalism because capitalism is designed for a very specific subset of brains and abilities. And it leaves everybody else in the dust because we are not quote unquote valuable because we can't grind as hard, um, which becomes exhausting. You know, I've realized that I have been grinding my whole life just to try and get by, just to try and pay my bills, to pick and choose which bill I pay each month, to, you know, all of those things. And for what? You know, to be told that if I end up needing to require welfare or if I end up needing to require, you know, EI supports again, or if we ever get a universal basic income that I might literally live off of it for a while because I'm so exhausted that I need rest and I can't get it. And I'm constantly stuck in this state of, well, I can't just not work because I can't afford to live without money, but also I'm exhausted and I don't know how much I can give to a job. That kind of rock and a hard place all the time is exhausting. And there's so many reasons why people require these supports. And when we talk about people cheating off the system, that is an, a lie that is told to us our whole lives so that we will strive to not be that. When what is cheating a system that is constantly cheated by the rich, it is designed to be cheated constantly by the rich and for them to be rewarded for that, like not paying taxes, all of these things. And then we are indoctrinated into this belief that we need to root for that. We need to say, no, don't tax the rich, that's bad. They earned that when most of the rich did not actually earn their riches without using the exploitation of workers, right? So it's, you know, what is cheating a system that is literally impossible to live off of? I mean, Ontario Works gives what I think it's, it was, at the time I was on it, it was maybe $723 a month, and 300 of that was supposed to go towards your rent. My rent at the time was ten was 1050 How was I supposed to make that work? I had to find a roommate last minute, and that roommate ended up being really flaky with rent, and it put me in a really horrible situation, and I was constantly stressed, and I, you know... Of course, people are not going to report all the money that they received while they're on it. They're not going, you know, all the cash donations that they've been given by people. Of course, they're not going to uh, be able to find jobs quickly. Of course, like, there's not enough support. There's not enough money. There's not, like, you are constantly stressed when you are on those systems because you are constantly wondering about where is my bill, where are my bills going to come from? If I lose this place of residence, where am I going to go next? You know? We don't consider this on a grand scale, for the most part, any of us who have not had to be on these systems before, because we, we've never had to be on them. We don't know what it's like to try and live off of them. We've always had secure enough jobs that that's not an issue. And when we feel less secure in a job, we just find another one and move forward. If you have had that ability to do that, great. And, and that's good for you. But it's harmful when we don't also acknowledge how immensely stressful and awful these systems are. And I mean, yes, that's by design, but it is harmful when we don't do that because it is so easy to be like, oh yeah, that's wrong. And then turn back to our lives where we don't have to worry about that and not think about it again. And then everybody else is left in the dust every single time. And again, this is this type of greed and narcissism and that is a direct byproduct of capitalism. And we are taught to not understand that and to not see that and to not believe that. There's so many excuses made for capitalism and it's such a huge problem because capitalist capitalism is an inherently oppressive system because it is built off of keeping the rich rich and the only way to keep the rich rich is to exploit the poor
So anyway, that was a long tangent, but it is part of the conversations that were coming up at the table. And I thought it was a really interesting one, um, you know, to keep talking about because it's something that I think about quite often um, in terms of social justice as well. I think it's really easy, especially as white people, for us to look at the things happening in the world and sit there and go, that's awful. I am anti-racist. I am all of these things. And then to turn back to our lives and be like, well, I donated $50 here and there and, you know, I'm good. And then just live our lives without thinking about it because it's too difficult to think about all the stuff that's happening. And I've realized, um, you know, through talking to other friends who are autistic and, and then also through my own experiences, that like my brain is not designed to be able to shut that off. I literally can't stop thinking about injustice. And I don't think that that's something that people understand really readily is that like I do not have the ability to just switch that off. The reason why it's hard for me to sleep at night is because I am constantly thinking about all of these things. Constantly. Every moment of every day. <laughs> You know, I'm constantly hyper aware of all these things that I have learned about the world and, and constantly in this state of feeling like there's not enough momentum uh, for us to make change. There's not enough people who are exposed to the realities of capitalism and how awful it is to make change. And so we just, you know, sometimes I think I am because I'm in this little void of people that I have curated for myself that feel the same way that I do. And then sometimes, you know, I sit at dinner tables like I did, the, you know, last weekend and, and I have really positive conversations with people. And I think, yeah, like people are starting to get it. But then, you know, everybody goes back to their life and, and doesn't worry about it in the same way that I do. And in part, that is because I live it on a daily basis. But I also cannot stop thinking about it. And I think that's an important piece to remember is that, you know, while you might be able to shut that part of your brain off when it's convenient for you, many people aren't. And so the, the ability to do that is a privilege. But it's also one that you can't let run rampant. You can't just sit there and be like, well, I can shut this off whenever I want. So I'm going to do that for a month and not think about it. That is a privilege. Some of us literally never get a break from this kind of thinking. And so it's really important to be able to remember that and and consider that. So that's kind of what I'm going to say on that, I think. But speaking of capitalism, <laughs> one of the other conversations that came up at the dinner table was what is fiscal, you know, what is being fiscally conservative? And it was funny because one of the groomsmen was talking about, he said, you know, I'm, I'm socially liberal, fiscally conservative. And I jumped on him right away because I was like, nope, 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 that's not possible under capitalism. It's not possible because most people's perspective of fiscally conservative is what the current conservative parties and Republicans are doing with money, which is not fiscally conservative. To be that level of quote unquote fiscally conservative is to deny resources to people that would actually save us money in the long term. So for example, if we actually supported mental health and funded mental health support across the board, dental across the board, uh, physio across the board, like any sort of medical, whether it be for your own mental clarity or your physical clarity, physical ability was supported and did not cost money to people, it would cost our medical system less money over the long haul because those things directly can cause larger physical medical issues that need attention later in life. That's just a logical, you know, common sense thing if you actually pay attention to it, but it's a thing that people do not consider. And that is part of being like being truly fiscally conservative conservative would be funding those things because it means that you are actually saving money in the long run and creating healthier people who are more willing to do the work that they're doing and more able to do the work that they're doing and have more mental clarity and more physical ability to do the work that they're doing. But we don't do that. Instead, being fiscally conservative and current in, in, in most people's perspective is, oh, we can't fund those things because it's too expensive. But, you know, I believe in people having rights. And those two things are, are you know, those, those two, two dualities cannot actually live together. <laughs> you know, they do tend to, which is what creates this huge divide and this huge amount of people who lack support and lack the funds to be able to take care of themselves and, and end up, one, dying early because of it or end up being hospitalized because of it or, you know, whatever. For example, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of trauma and stress can lead to things like um, uh, Parkinson's, for example, or fibromyalgia or, you know, there are things later in life that could be prevented or lessened or held off for longer if it weren't for the amount of immense stress and trauma and um, 
just, you know, mental health issues that are direct byproducts of capitalism. Here we are again with the byproducts of capitalism. Um, and if we actually supported those systems, it would save us more money in the long run and people would be happier and more able to live their lives. So I jumped on the, I jumped on this groomsman because I was like, no, you can't be those two things. And then as we sussed it a little longer and I explained this piece, he was like, no, 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 I agree with you. That's what I mean by fit, being fiscally conservative. So I had to explain to him why just stating that you're fiscally conservative but socially liberal can be problematic and why people can't, be, can't initially know what you're trying to say. Because for the most part, when people say that, they're not actually talking about true fiscal conservatism. Um, and I think quite often about... You know, when I was, again, when I lost my job in 2019, my stress levels were so high that I was sick all the time. I am somebody who is never sick. And not just because of this pandemic and not going out anywhere. I would get sick maybe once a year at my most stressful time of year. And it would be a light cold that would maybe linger for a month. And that would be it. I am rarely violently sick. I am rarely so sick that I can't, you know, get out of bed. I am, I am rarely sick. I was sick so constantly that I didn't know what healthy was. <laughs> that is a direct relation to being so stressed about my job, so stressed about losing my job, so stressed about money that I didn't know where my bills were going to come from because I just lost my job and my livelihood and I was only getting through EI half of what my previous salary had been and I did not know how to live off of that because I had lived paycheck to paycheck on my previous salary. Like these are the byproducts of living in a society where we do not care about human life. We truly do not, as a society, care about human life because the moment you talk about raising the minimum wage, the moment you start talking about universal basic income, the moment you start talking about providing other supports and more medical support and whatnot is the moment that everybody and their fucking dog come out of the framework to sit there and go, people just need to work harder and get better jobs. Minimum wage was desi wasn't designed to be a forever career, blah, blah, blah. All of these things that are literal conservative capitalist indoctrination talking points that and they're not even true you know like minimum wage for example was literally created in a time where you could live off of it with a family of four and one income that's how cap that's how minimum wage what minimum wage was created for it was designed to be able to have a minimum base wage in which uh, at the time a man could go you know work his minimum wage full-time job come home to a wife and to you know his 2.5 kids and their pet and make and you know and have a house and live comfortably enough with retirement with a pension you know with the ability to continue to live their lives that's not how minimum wage works anymore the the with the rate of inflation minimum wage should be well into the you know thirty dollars an hour kind of thing and it's not because we have been taught through especially in late stage, late stage capitalism that to desire minimum wage to be higher is to let all the other things be raised so that everything is just ends up back where it is like if you raise minimum wage then the price of bread's going to rise and the price of everything else is going to rise which is actually that isn't true. We can put caps on those things. We can put other legislation in for those things. Um, we can regulate those things through government. That's what governments should be for. Um, but instead, we just say, nope, nope, we can't possibly do it. It's just going to become more expensive. No, you have to live off of nothing, essentially. Like, minimum wage is no longer livable. In fact, like, like it's raising, there was an announcement that minimum wage is being raised to $15 an hour, finally, this January in Ontario. Well, okay. What is that going to do for anybody? $15 an hour is, is nothing, <laughs> you know? Um, it's especially for, you know, especially anybody in Southern Ontario, but I mean, all of Ontario is pretty impossible to live in right now. And in Southern Ontario, especially if you are anywhere near the GTA, anywhere, like even in KW, uh, Kitchener and Waterloo is impossible to live in. You, you've got, you know, two bedroom apartments leasing for anywhere between 1700 to $2,000 or to $2,100 a month for a two bedroom apartment. That's not livable on minimum wage. That's more than your monthly salary. That's, you can't live off of that. And, and then the, then people just come out of the frameworks to be like, we just not get a roommate. You weren't supposed to be able to live on your own with minimum wage. And it's like, that's literally false. And also, why should grown adults have to be subjected to living with multiple roommates 
in their adulthood, in their 30s and 40s and 50s, because like if they want to do that, great. But if you don't want to do that and you value your own space, why should you be subjected to having to live with other people solely because society refuses to let you work a job that's going to let you live your life? We have people living paycheck to paycheck constantly and they cannot get ahead. And then, of course, all these people coming out of the frameworks to say, like, well, just get a better job, get a raise, ask for a promotion, blah, 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 without acknowledging that, like, if you were able to do that, that's great. That worked for you. It's not going to work for everybody else. That's not something that works for everybody. In fact, it works if I have literally asked for raises before in jobs and been laughed at or have been deemed difficult because I am asking for more money and therefore I am a problem person. Like, and that's just me being a white woman, right? Like... <laughs> Imagine not being white and asking for those things. You know, like it's just, I could rant about this forever, clearly, and I'm sure none of you are surprised. But it's just, it is part of the conversations I was having is that like, you know, it's this, this notion of being fiscally conservative doesn't work in our current society because unless fiscal conservatism is actually going to consider the long-term effects of everything that's currently in place, which they're not. They're only worried about their current bottom line, which means that our governments are running exactly like all these greedy fucking corporations. I have worked for several of them. I know how this works. <laughs> you know, they only, they won't put, they won't spend the money to put infrastructure in that over decades will save them immense amounts of money because for them as a four-year government or as a corporation, their partners and whatnot only care about the current bottom line. So it needs to show in this year's budget. And then we just start all over again. Nobody is willing to take the time to put in all this infrastructure that will literally save lives, save lives and make life so much easier for people to live. And we refuse to do it because it won't get, this year's bottom line will, will go through the drain. Well, yeah, sometimes you have to spend a lot of fucking money up front to be able to see the dividends. I talk about this with CERB, for example. If CERB had been an, a universal basic income from the start and literally everybody got it, people who made over a certain threshold would be taxed back for that amount. Like anybody making over 100 grand a year would probably be taxed back that amount, but everybody else gets it. And who cares what people do with that money? But it is a buffer to be able to help people live. There are pilot projects that have proven that giving people an extra amount of money on top of whatever they make, or if they just want to live off of that, helps their quality of life and they become better members of society and be able to contribute so much more to society because of that, right? Because they're not constantly wondering how they're going to feed themselves and pay their bills. If CERB had been, if it had been a universal basic income from the start, yes, it's a lot of money to dole out from the beginning. It feels like a huge deficit, but we would already be seeing the dividends from that. We would already be seeing people who had gone through this pandemic and were able to better live their lives and better afford their lives and would already be giving back to the economy, right? Like these things end up paying for themselves. And one of the things that I, that I already talked about or not talked about here, I think I've already talked about it on the podcast, but one of the things I talked about at the table, one of the other things I should say that I talked about at the table this week, past weekend was that, you know, it feels like printing money initially, but first of all, <laughs> money is fake. You cannot change your mind. <laughs> it is a it is literally creation of capitalism. <laughs> but you know, when you spend all of that money up front and you wait a little bit, you start to see these benefits. Like we spend, and this is what a lot of people do not see, and I know I've talked about this on the podcast before, we spend so much money on our EI programs, on our Ontario Works program, like our, or on our welfare programs and whatnot. We spend so much money just policing who deserves that money and who doesn't, who is worthy of it and who doesn't, who might be cheating the system and who isn't, when it's less than 5% of people who quote-unquote cheat the system. Like, less than 5%. We are taught to believe it's way more, but it's less than 5%. And honestly, who the fuck cares, truly? It's designed to be cheated, as I said earlier. But we spend so much money just determining whether people are worthy of the financial support or not. And that is absolutely fucked up. If we had a universal basic income, we would not require to spend that kind of money to police who gets it and who doesn't. Everybody just gets it, you know? And so we could use that money could be used elsewhere. It could be used to help fund the UBI. It could then be used, it could be then be funneled into other things if the UBI starts to give back to the economy because other people are supported and people can actually live their lives. Like these are the things that are not considered when we talk about these things. We are just immediately like, nope, we can't afford it. How are we going to pay for it? It's like sometimes we have to lay down a lot of money up front to be able to 
make sure that people are taken care of. And this is why money as a construct and money as a concept is fucked because unless you have enough money and unless you have been lucky enough and privileged enough to get ahead, to be given a resource or given a job or whatever by somebody in your life, you are going to suffer under this no matter how hard you try. There are so many of us in our 30s and 40s and even 50s and even boomers who have struggled our entire lives and literally cannot get ahead no matter how hard we try. We've done the good jobs, we've done the bad jobs, we've done the, we've done it all and we are exhausted and we literally have very little left to give and we're just stuck here. We're just stuck here. And I think it's so important that we start to consider these things a lot more, even if it doesn't affect us directly, even if capitalism has worked for us. We need to be able to think about these things and apply it to the people around us so that we know that like our experience is not everybody else's. Hoarding wealth is a concept of capitalism. It is fucked <laughs> that people can sit on millions and billions of dollars and use it for whatever the F they want. And there are those of us who 40 grand would change our life. There are people who 10 grand would change their life. And these people get to sit there and hoard wealth because what? Because we believe as a society that they quote unquote earned it. No, they didn't. They quote unquote earned it by exploiting workers. Every corporation does it. Every single corporation does it. It's the only way you make money in capitalism. And it is wrong. People should be more important than money. But unfortunately, under capitalism, money is more important than people. And that should be an indicator to absolutely everybody <laughs> that this is a fucked up system. And yet it's not because the indoctrination is deep. It's much like how religious indoctrination works. And a lot of religious indoctrination is directly tied to capitalism, which is funny when you consider the fact that, uh, and funny, I don't mean haha, I mean fucked. Um, consider the fact that, you know, if you are a Christian and you believe in God and Jesus, that Jesus spoke out about I mean, it didn't say capitalism. He didn't say capitalism directly because capitalism didn't exist at the time, but he spoke out about greed and, and wealth. If you have wealth and you invite people to sit at your table, you should never ask for things in return. You should always give back. There's a reason why Jesus sat with the poor. There's a reason why Jesus sat with the sick. There's a reason why Jesus sat with, you know, all of the quote-unquote outcast people in his world, right? And yet... Religion is so tied to capitalism right now. And specifically, not just religion, I should say, Christianity is tied directly to capitalism. You see a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of churches make a lot of money. Not all of them. Like, the churches I'm part of are not rich. But, um, you know, it's just there, there are a lot of evangelical and, and fundamentalist churches that are very well off. The Catholic Church is very well off. You know, and these are directly tied to capitalism, which is not Christian. You know, I, I, I like to joke that I, I will be the person who enters a room and will be like, capitalism is anti-Christian, you can't change my mind, and then walk away. And I'm only partly joking because I am that person. I truly believe that as a Christian and as and a person who has learned how harmful firsthand and through other people's lived experiences by listening, you know, that capitalism is inherently harmful and traumatic system to live in. We are all deeply traumatized. The amount of trauma that might not exist if we did not live under capitalism, if we lived in a world that actually supported people and not money, it would be an entirely different world. And it's hard to even imagine what that would look like because we have just been living under trauma our whole lives. Anyway, these were the fun conversations that I brought to the table. <laughs> <laughs> which is as per usual. Um, I'm, and, uh, you know, anybody who's my friend is not surprised by this. <laughs> and anybody who's been listening to this podcast for a long time is probably also not surprised by this. You know, I was joking with brother the other day about how I think that, you know, it's been fun watching me radicalize him a little bit. Um, and it kind of brings me joy. <laughs> Because as we talk about things, he starts to see things that he hadn't even considered before. You know, we're learning together. And I think that that's really great. And, and the reason we have this podcast is to be able to do the same. We want to be able to share these conversations and have these difficult conversations very openly so that so that others can understand where we're coming from. Um, and I think, you know, anybody who chooses to listen to this is hopefully open to listening and, and understanding and changing perspectives. And we're so grateful, as always, that you guys are part of this. So on that note, 
I will end things here, but hopefully my ramblings bring you a little bit of joy. <laughs> Or at least get you fired up just like me. Or make you laugh, because this is just a very Bronwyn podcast. But, <laughs> but uh, on that note, uh, if you would like to stay in touch with us, please follow us, uh, Sibling Rants, on Instagram and Facebook, and uh, Sibling Rants Pod on Twitter. Um, I don't update the Twitter very often. I'm really bad for that. But maybe if I get more interactions, I will remember to be on. <laughs> um and uh, as always, you can leave us, uh, you can drop us a line at our email at siblingrants at gmail.com. We are so happy to, you know, discuss anything that you guys bring up. And and even, you know, if you send us something that, that you think we said that was problematic, we are happy to, happy to discuss that as well. And as always, uh, if you've been listening for a long time and you have not let us, left us a review yet, what the fuck are you doing? Please leave us a review. It really helps the algorithm. It helps uh, helps us get seen. Share us with your friends. And um, if you're new here and you like what you hear, please drop us a review either on Facebook or on Apple Podcasts. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see you next time. Um, we do have a guest episode coming up that we're pretty excited about. So we'll, we will see you soon. And uh, thanks for your patience as we've been sorting through these really, really busy, I guess, months. <laughs> so um, thanks, everybody. Bye. Yeah.